simple song, not much to it. The one thing is, you see we have a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and then a chorus repeat. So in your sheet music, there is a section. The second half of the piece is called chorus. I think you can see that. So at the third, by the third time we sing this song, Safely to the golden shore in my heart. That chorus, it's different words. If you have a Bible, open up to Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, if not, it'll be on the screen in front of you, but this is a fantastic passage that we're going to look at uh, together. So have it before you in some way on your smartphone or whatever it is. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 19 and just go to verse 24. Lamentations 3.19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the word of the Lord. It's been pretty fascinating as we've been reading through the Bible together uh, as a church. I don't know if you've had moments like this where you've uh, come across a book or a story or something and thought this. Why in the world did God decide to include this in my Bible? I mean, of all the things that he could have included... We have 66 books, about 40 authors, seven or so genres written over 1,500 years. A lot happened. There are a lot of options from a lot of different perspectives. But we know that from history, the church has literally laid its life down. Men and women have died to get this word in our laps, in our language, so we can read it today because they're that committed. They're that sure that these are the words that God wanted to preserve for us that we read together right now. And so I had that thought this week. I was reading Lamentations and I thought, why is this in here? I mean, I don't know if if you read it or or were in it this week or maybe you zoned out as you were listening. If not, no judgment, no judgment from me. It happens to the best of us. But it's like, what, what is happening exactly in this book that God felt it necessary to preserve it for us? In case you forgot or didn't read it, Lamentations comes right on the heels of uh, Jerusalem being taken by the Babylonians, God's southern tribes going into exile in Babylon. All of this destruction is happening. It is the darkest moment in the history of Israel, bar none. It's a moment that uh, Lamentations 2, 5 says, it's when God became an enemy to his own people. It's that dark. Because remember, this has been the point the whole time through the Bible. The land promised to Abraham, taken in the conquest, Jerusalem given to David. The temple was built. We're worshiping in Jerusalem, and now it's all burning right before our eyes. And that's what God's people are walking through. The suffering and despair that they're feeling. And just listen to a couple of things we've seen before we even get to Lamentations chapter 3. Some of the suffering that they're walking through. Part of the problem when we read the Bible is we can fictionalize it a little bit. Like, it's just another novel, and these were kind of real people with kind of real feelings walking through kind of real things. We have to just remind ourselves, these are real people who process things just like we process things, who have feelings and thoughts 
and hardships and doubts just like we do. So listen to some of the things they walked through. They watched the temple burn and the priests massacred. They watched infants die of starvation in the arms of their moms. They watched parents eat the remains of those same kids on the brink of starvation. Young women being brutally raped, bodies piling up in the streets dead, all the while being systematically, one by one, family and friends taken into exile from their country. And so this is the kind of things that they're walking through. And so Lamentations is written as a testimony to this moment. It's written, we think, by Jeremiah, and it's written a lot in the first person. But what Jeremiah is doing is he's talking about the collective suffering of God's people. In other words, he's speaking for everybody. This is what we're feeling as God's people as we walk through this hardship together. And what you find in Lamentations is unedited, raw language. I mean, just raw emotion coming out. In chapter three, before the verses that we read, listen to some of the things that Jeremiah says. Imagine talking to God like this. Jeremiah describes God as a wild animal who has hunted him down and tore him apart. He talks about him in verse six and seven, like God handcuffed him inside a coffin and then nailed the lid on to let him die. Verses 12 and 13, he says, God's like a skilled archer who's using his people for target practice. And all the while, the worst of it all, verses 8 and 9, God is seemingly totally absent. He's not responding to their prayers. He's not relieving their suffering. He's as distant as he ever has been. And so this is pretty intense stuff. So, so the question comes, why is this here? Why is this in our Bibles? You know, it's like, um, this didn't happen, by the way, so just go with me to hypothetical land. But just imagine, you know, someone puts the Bible together, right? And they like bring it to God and they're like, hey God, here's kind of what we were thinking. First draft, don't get too attached to it. Just like, what do you think about this or whatever? And God's reading through like what, you know, the proposal of the Bible and he comes to Lamentations. He's like, Lamentations, what was that again? Page 1300. Oh, that's, that's where Jeremiah said I was like the savage bear, right? Like, no, let's cut that. Uh, more Psalms and Song of Solomon part two. Okay, we're just gonna include that. That sells, you know, the whole thing. Uh, no, right? God doesn't do that. He leaves it in here for us. And it's really interesting because we've seen Jerusalem fall how many times? How many times have we seen Jerusalem destroyed as we read the Bible? Over and over and over again. God includes this, I think, not because we need more history, but for more honesty. That God wants to include this darkest season in his people's lives to say to us, hey, this relationship with me is not a bait and switch. I wanna give you a real picture of the real suffering of life that there are gonna be times where you feel like I'm against you. There are gonna be times where you feel like I'm not listening to you and I don't hear you. There are gonna be times where life feels overwhelming. God wants to be honest with us about that. So he includes the book of Lamentations in the Bible to prepare us for those moments. And so what I wanna do for us this morning is look at this passage and Lamentations kind of as a whole and look at six biblical truths we see about suffering so that we can be prepared well to suffer. The first one is this. This world is not right, and so suffering should not surprise us. This world is not right, so suffering should not surprise us. Implicit in this passage is explicit all over the Bible. The world is broken. It's not right. It's not existing now as it was created to exist. Listen to Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Here's the picture. When Adam and Eve sin and sin comes in the world, God cursed the world. He subjected it. He, he put the world in slavery to corruption, it says, which means this. Everything is decaying. Everything is breaking down. Not just us, but everything around us. Our bodies break down. Our relationships break down. Our marriages break down. The world is literally decaying around us. The world is not right. But we don't just know that biblically. Don't we know that experientially? Don't you feel every single day when you turn on the news and there's another shooting at a school, doesn't your heart just go, this is not right? This is not what we were created for. This is not how the world was created to exist. We feel it. We know it. And God's honest with us that the world is broken. And so here's where that leads us. Since everything is breaking down, since everything is decaying, we're not to be surprised when suffering comes. We can't be. It's part of the broken order. So look at 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I remember hearing Tim Keller say one time, Half of the pain that we feel when we suffer is because we're not prepared to suffer. So when suffering comes, we're taken off guard. We weren't ready for it. And we start to think things like, I didn't see this coming. This isn't fair. Woe is me. And we're just not ready to suffer. And half the pain we feel is because we just weren't prepared and we're surprised when it comes along. Um, And and so we have to get our expectations right. I, I was thinking about this this week and a couple of years ago when I was going through my ordination exams, uh, uh, there's like this committee you have to go through before to take a test. And I had heard for years and years and years by every guy who had done it or knew someone who did it, hey, that's a brutal committee. Like you're gonna walk into the lion's den, buddy. I hope you're ready. It's tough. And so I thought I'm gonna walk in that room and if I get one thing wrong, not only are they not gonna let, let me be a pastor, I might not be a Christian anymore. Like this is gonna be the worst experience of my life. But, you know, so I prepared like crazy. You know what I found? It was hard, but it was fair. And I knew those guys were for me. And here's the point. When we prepare well for suffering, and it doesn't surprise us, when it comes, we're either going to go, yeah, this, this is just as hard as I expected it to be. Or maybe we'll say, you know what, actually, this is not even as painful as I thought. Because we get our expectations right, that it's a broken world, and with brokenness comes suffering that comes into our lives, and so we can't let it catch us off guard. Secondly, truth that we see about suffering in Scripture, God is honest with us, and he invites honesty from us. He's honest with us, and he invites honesty from us. And so if lamentations exist for any reason, I think it's this. We've already said God's God's honest with us about the world, but God also invites honesty from us. That God... If, if we've learned anything from the Old Testament, is it not this? The last thing that God wants is dressed up religion that hides our hearts and what's actually happening deep in our souls. And we just present to God like everything's fine. I mean, this is the last thing that God wants. He invites our brutal honesty. Let me ask you a question. When I read some of those verses earlier from Lamentations, did you not feel a little bit uncomfortable? God's a bear, a skilled archer. It talked about him uh, rubbing our face in the dirt. 
Like we do not talk to God like that, right? Like real Christians do not talk to God like that. God wrote Lamentations and put it in our Bible so that we could know, no, this is exactly how real Christians talk. Because real Christians have these emotions in a broken world where you feel like God's against me, God's left me, and some of you right now in your heart are bitter against God. You hate him. Your life hasn't turned out like you wanted it to. You haven't gotten what you expected to get. Every turn is just another slap in the face. And instead of hiding that in our hearts and growing bitter and resentful, what God does is invites honesty from us and he gives us lamentations to say, hey, so what some of you need to do this afternoon is find a field to go yell at God. Just let it out. It's time to just express what's in your heart. And then, hey, maybe you need to repent after because you said some stuff you're not supposed to say. But the last thing that God would want is for you to hold that in and not express honestly how you're really feeling to him. And I think, I just wanna say this, if you're not a Christian and you're in the room this morning, I think we owe you an apology on this one. Because I think for years, the church has played this game. Hey, the way that we get people to become Christians is to act like you come follow Jesus, life will get easier. You come follow Jesus, everything will start to get a little bit smoother. When the Bible tells us you start following Jesus and a lot of times life gets harder. More pain comes. You start experiencing suffering like you never thought you would before. And so we put up this facade and so there's a total absence of lament in the church But as the church, shouldn't we be the people who, with objective truth about reality and the world that we live in, shouldn't we be the ones who are saying, hey, God is honest, the world is broken, Christians are not spared from that, here's the things we should lament over, and here's how we do it. Man, what a much more beautiful and robust picture of Christianity that would be if we were honest about the real experience of life. And so point number three, sin is sometimes, but not always, connected to our suffering. Sin is sometimes, but not always connected to our suffering. I think there's at least three categories of suffering in the Bible. So there's deserved suffering. We'll talk about that. There's innocent suffering. We'll talk about that. And then I think there's righteous suffering, which we won't talk about, which is just basically suffering because of Jesus, suffering in Jesus's name because we follow him. But let's look at deserved suffering and innocent suffering as two types of suffering that we see in the Bible. Deserved suffering, first of all, this is the kind of suffering that we see in Lamentations. That God has said... Here's your sin, and if you don't repent and come back to me, here's the consequences that are coming. He's told them. And so it's come. And they're reaping what they've sown. And they're feeling the suffering that's a result of their sin. And this is true for us as well. Sometimes sin is connected to our suffering. So sometimes uh, suffering is just a natural consequence of sin. You sin in certain ways and certain things just flow out of it that your life starts breaking apart because you sin in a certain way. But sometimes there's a pattern of sin in your life that God loves you too much to see you maintain. And so he sends suffering to break that pattern of sin in your life. Either way, uh, the suffering in that case is the result of sin. You can see a direct correlation there. But this is so key. Don't miss this in this point. Whatever suffering comes in the life of a Christian, even when it's because of sin, is never punishment and always discipline. Our suffering in the Christian life is never punishment, it's always discipline. Or you could say it this way, 
For Christians, all suffering is formative and never punitive. How do we know that? We know because Jesus took all of our punishment. He took it all. God doesn't have reserve punishment just waiting for you for when you get really deep into sin that he can bring it out to shove in your face and say, hey, you thought it was all gone? Here's a little bit that's left for you. No, God is a good father who loves us, who disciplines us. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so sometimes suffering comes and is directly correlated to our sin. But we also don't believe in karma, right? It's not always A plus B equals C. Sometimes suffering is unfair, which leads us to the second one, which is innocent suffering. Innocent suffering comes when we don't sin, but still suffer. I think the best example of this in the Bible is in John chapter 9, where Jesus and the disciples come up on a man born blind. Okay, so he's born blind. And the disciples immediately, intrinsically, their gut reaction is this. Hey, Jesus, let's learn something. Is this guy's sin, uh, his sin, is this suffering result of his sin or his parents' sin? Just assuming it has to be connected to sin. All suffering is, right? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. This guy was born blind, not because of any sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Meaning this, there isn't always a cause and effect with sin and suffering. Sometimes we're innocently suffering not connected to any sin directly. And so the question is, how do we know the difference? How can we figure that out? How can we figure out, am I suffering right now because of sin or am I suffering right now because we just live in a broken world and sometimes I'm just innocently suffering? James helps us in James chapter one. Look at what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you see trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what James does. He says, hey, just take a step back for a second. Whatever suffering enters your life, don't worry so much about the question of, is this suffering here because I'm sinning or is it I'm an innocent sufferer? Instead, just go, all right, God, suffering has come into my life. What's your goal in this? Because if we're honest, our goal in suffering is usually just to make it through, right? We just want it to be done. And so we just try to get to the end as fast as possible. But God wants to give us a different perspective. And he says, I always have the same goal in suffering. Because of sin or not because of sin, doesn't matter. I want to make you perfect and complete in Christ. I want to mature you. I want to grow you up. I want to form you more into Christ's image. And so when suffering comes, you can always go, all right, God, is there any sin right now that I need to repent of? Please show it to me. I want it gone. But maybe you're like, really like, I I can't think of anything. And so maybe your suffering isn't connected to your sin, but you can still say, God, you're obviously doing something in this to form me. I don't want to fight against you. I want to join in with you. So would you help me to trust you all the way through this? Because I trust that you're doing something in me through it. So number four, When it comes to suffering, we have to know that God is not indifferent and his love will have the final word. God is not indifferent. His love will have the final word. Look back at at, um, Lamentations 3, 19 through 20. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He gives us this summary of all the suffering that the people have felt. He says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, 
the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it's bowed down within me. Wormwood and gall is like bitter poison. He's like, we've drank bitter poison. It's affected us forever. We'll never forget this. It's marked us indelibly. But then in verse 21, everything flips. It's like Jeremiah is saying, we'll never get over this suffering. And then all of a sudden in verse 21, listen to what he says. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Here's what happens in Jeremiah's mind in this moment. He realizes all this suffering that has come our way, God warned us. He told us. He promised us, if you keep going down this path, this is coming. And so he was faithful to do what he said he was going to do, even though it wasn't something that we wanted. Is it possible that God is also going to be faithful to his covenant promises? Is it also possible that God's not going to give up on the promise that you will be my people and I will be your God, but that God's still going to hold on to that? And so Jeremiah has hope. And the faithfulness of God, who always does what he says he's going to do, who always maintains his love towards us. And so he calls things to mind. This phrase, call to mind, is literally to cause to return to your heart. Jeremiah is saying this. Anybody, any of you who have gone through suffering know this. Thoughts of hope don't naturally enter in. It's usually a cycle downward. Despair naturally enters in. Depression naturally enters in. Thoughts of being abandoned by God naturally enter in. Thoughts of I'm never going to get out of this naturally enter in. So what Jeremiah says you have to do when you're suffering is you have to take the truth of God's word that you're not necessarily feeling in that moment and insert it into the equation. You're not feeling it as true, but it remains true. And so call it to mind. Throw it into the cycle of thoughts. You could call this preaching the gospel to yourself. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this skill that we all have to learn. He says, there's a sense in which the primary task of the scriptures is to teach us how to talk to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you bringing back all the problems of yesterday, somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. But instead of allowing yourself to talk to you, start talking to yourself. Why are you downcast, oh my soul, asked the psalmist. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a minute. I will speak to you. Talk to yourself and say, whether I feel it or not, I believe the scriptures. I believe that God's word is still true and I will stay my soul on it and I'll believe it come what may. Oh, this is what we have to do in suffering. Call to mind the truth of God's word and remind our hearts of it and stop listening to ourselves. So two things that we have to call to mind. Look back at verses 22 and 23. These amazing verses. In the midst of suffering, Jeremiah says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning great is your faithfulness. Two things we have to call to mind in the midst of suffering. The first is steadfast love. Steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It showed up all over the Old Testament that over and over and over and over again, God says to his people, here's the kind of love that I have for you. 
My love for you is not contingent on anything you did. A great verse in Deuteronomy 7 where he's like, here's the deal, y'all. You're the smallest nation. You didn't have a great army. You're pretty weak. You're not that smart. There was not a whole lot going for you. And I picked you anyway. I loved you anyway. So realize this. I didn't pick you based on anything I saw in you. So I'm not gonna leave you based on anything you do in the future. I love you because I love you. I'm never gonna stop loving you. And he says the same to you, Christian, because here's what happens in the midst of suffering. We feel so intensely like God has abandoned us. Like this is the moment where steadfast love has ceased. And we have to enter into our minds this thought of steadfast love where God says, I am never going to stop loving you. I'm not. No matter what sin comes, no matter what things you walk through, no matter what your feelings tell you, I'm never gonna leave you, I'm never gonna forsake you. I'm never gonna abandon you. And so we work that reminder of steadfast love back into our minds. Tim Keller says this, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. You will not make it through if you're not sure of God's steadfast love. You won't make it. And so you have to call it to mind. And then the second thing we call to mind is new mercies. New mercies. God's mercies are new every morning. Um, I don't know how many of you have read Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you haven't read it, you have to read it. It's so good. He helped me so much on this point. But uh, when we think about mercy, the way that uh, we typically define mercy when we talk about mercy is we say uh, it's God not giving us the things that we deserve, right? You've heard that definition. But I think biblical mercy is actually more than that because that makes God sound kind of distant and kind of removed, right? Like, ah, I'm just not gonna punish you like you deserve. You're welcome. It's kind of what it feels like. Biblical mercy is actually a lot closer to compassion where God's saying, not only am I not gonna give you what you deserve, but also in the midst of your hardest moments, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. I'm sticking with you in your mess. And no matter what, I'm for you. I'm for you. And this is so important that we remember this because sometimes, especially in this section of the Bible that we're in right now, in Jeremiah and then Lamentations, the the attributes of God that are on full display are his judgment and his righteousness, right? That God is committed to his holiness and he's pouring out wrath because of people's sin. But the reality is that while God is perfect in all of his attributes, biblically what we see is that some things flow more naturally from him. Some things are closer to the center of the heart of God than others. And we see this in Lamentations. Let me show it to you. Look at Lamentations 3.33. It says this, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So if you studied Lamentations, here's what you would see. It's these five poems. Uh, In each poem, there's a line with the Hebrew alphabet in each one, okay? So it's very literarily structured. The center point, the highest literary point in, in Lamentations, the thing that God is most trying to draw our attentions to is this verse. That what he wants us to see, even though it looks like all he cares about is justice, righteousness, punishment, that it says he does not afflict from his heart. Theologians say this, that judgment is God's strange work. It's not the thing that flows most naturally from him. What flows most naturally from him is mercy. 
what's most central to his heart is mercy. And so you can think about it this way. When you're, when you're startled, like when someone scares you, what most naturally comes out? Don't say it out loud. That would be bad. Uh, I have this, um, in my house, I somehow functionally live like no one else lives there. And so I'm constantly startled by people when they walk in the room. I don't know how that happens. Some sort of, y'all can work with me on that later. But the other week I was in the bathroom. It's not a bathroom story, don't worry. But I'm in the bathroom and I'm do, I'm have mouthwash in my mouth. And Jen just walks in the bathroom. How dare her, right? And it scared me to death. I spit mouthwash everywhere, across the room. Just fountain of mouthwash. It just comes out of me. You startle me, it just happens. If you were to catch God off guard, as it were, what most naturally comes out of him? Mercy. Mercy. It just flows from his heart. Listen to what Dane Ortland says. Scripture tells us that God is slow to anger. He doesn't have his finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his wrath. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times. But we are not once told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, while divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. You have to call to your mind that the mercies of God are new for you every morning so that you realize God's deepest heart for you is to restore you, is to love you, is to be with you in the middle of your mess. It's not to hurt you or to harm you. When he's pricked, mercy comes out. Dane Ortland goes on. Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. He went down into the horror of death and plunged through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. And so, brothers and sisters, if you hear anything, hear this. God's mercies for you are new every morning. And they're new every afternoon. And every night. God's mercies are new for you after every sin. God's mercies are new for you every moment. You don't have to wait till next week or next month or a new year to get new mercies. You have it now. And when you dive into the pool of God's mercies and use some of them up, they're just as new as they were before you started because they never run out. They're gushing over. God is constantly showing mercy to you. And it's a beautiful thing to call to mind when we suffer. Number five, very quick point. Suffering is never pointless, but we don't always see the point. Suffering is never pointless, but we don't always see the point. Here's what I mean by that. Suffering is not linear in the sense of suffering comes into our life. It's hard. Us and God have a, you know, makeup session after. And he says, here's what I was trying to do. Did you actually learn that? And then we never think about it again. It just doesn't work like that. Suffering instead is, like we see in the book of Lamentations, despair, hope, more despair, more despair. Hope, more despair. It's cyclical. It comes back. So look how Lamentations ends. We love these verses in chapter 3, right? 
It's bad, 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 bad. And then we have this great high point in chapter three, but listen to the last two verses of the whole book. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. That's how it ends. But isn't that great? Because you can know that when you're suffering and you're up and down and it comes and goes and you have good days and bad days and good weeks and bad weeks and you can't get something off your mind and you can't outlive it, that scripture is honest with you that suffering is not linear. It's not A plus B or A plus B equals C every time. And so God reminds us of that. Lastly, this life is not ultimate and suffering has an expiration date. This life is not ultimate and suffering has an expiration date. Maybe the hardest thing to remember in the midst of suffering is that suffering is temporary. It's temporary. Look, some of you um, are walking through lifelong struggles that you know you'll never outlive. You'll carry them with you till the day you die. Things that mark you, things that you feel every day, relationships that are broken, lots of different things. And yet, even that suffering is temporary. Even that suffering, brothers and sisters, has an end date that is much sooner than we could ever expect. Because a day is coming, look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. A day is coming when this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Sometimes like when we, when we suffer, other people suffer, you hear questions or things like this. We say, man, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask God, why did I have to go through that? You know what I think? I think we're going to get to heaven and it's going to be like the last possible thing on our minds. We're not going to be quizzing God for explanations for the hardship that he put us through. We're going to go, man, if I could have just seen how amazing and glorious the new heavens and the new earth and relationship with Jesus that I get to experience right now are, I would have walked through suffering in life a totally different way because the two are not even worth comparing. It's not even like life is hard, but heaven will be good. These are both, you know, here. It's like life is hard, but outweighed beyond comparison is the joy of heaven. Suffering will come to an end and it won't even be worth comparing. There's this beautiful moment in Lord of the Rings. Um, I don't even know if people watch or listen to Lord of the Rings anymore and read it, whatever, but it's great. You should. Okay, so there's this great moment, Lord of the Rings, where it looks like Gandalf is dead um, and everything is kind of falling apart. And then Gandalf uh, comes back from the dead or so it seems and Samwise Gamgee, best character by far, looks at Gandalf and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What a fantastic question. And the answer in the Christian life is, is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes. How do we know? Because we have a Savior who really did rise from the dead, who really did defeat death, hell, and the grave forever to say there's a moment coming in your future, a moment of glory that won't even be worth comparing to the sufferings of this life. And how can he say it? Because Jesus is the ultimate Lamentations 3 sufferer. He's the only truly innocent sufferer, the only one who really did never sin and yet took on the punishment of God. 
He's the one who really was crushed and torn apart for our sin. He's the one who experienced the ultimate abandonment in the Garden of Gethsemane saying to God, take this cup from me. And God seemingly absent doesn't answer that prayer and pours out all of his wrath on Jesus. And on the cross, he says, why? Why have you forsaken me? He bears the ultimate wrath. He drinks the poison drink for us so that all we have left is the sweet cup of divine mercy and steadfast love. Jesus has done it all. He has suffered it all for us so we can be sure suffering has an expiration date and we will one day get there. Let's pray together. Father, um, I know that uh, for some people in this room who are in the midst of suffering right this moment, sermons like this and words like this can even feel like uh, more pain. They're not comforting because we're right in the midst of it. What we need most of all is compassion and friendship and community and someone to listen and care. And so I pray for friends who are in that season that right now what you would give them is your comfort. The knowledge that you are near to the brokenhearted, that not one tear is wasted, that no suffering is without a point. And that you're a God whose steadfast love and new mercies have not ceased for them. And also pray, God, for those of us who aren't walking through suffering right now, that we would live with the sober reality before us that this world is broken and so suffering is inevitable. It's coming for us. And so that we would prepare well. And we could walk through it and we could say, like, Like Job says, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. That above all, God, we would trust you as we suffer. And that we would remember that you're a God who loves to show mercy to us. Help us to come to the well of that mercy and drink deeply. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.